0: You are listening to Vida Abundante. We have started a verse-by-verse study of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Here's Pastor Jonathan Gallardo. First John, and and this, I'm going to, I'm giving you guys a fair warning that these verses, 14 through 18, will be of utter importance. There's... It's a very important passage, and it's climactic because it's at the end of his prologue that we've been studying for the past month and a half or so, and this passage is the highlight. It's the climax of everything that we've been discussing up until this point. Not only is it the climax of the prologue, but it will also give us a firm understanding of everything Jesus does afterwards. So once we begin to read the rest of the gospel, we'll understand it at a much deeper level because we'll, we'll understand the, the connections and the, and the Old Testament connections that John is doing within these couple of verses. So I want you to pay as much attention as possible today. Stay awake, stay alert, write down as many notes as you can because this will help you for the rest of our study in John. John. And as a fair warning, I'm not going to rush through it. I'm going to spend some good amount of time going through the detail of everything these verses explain. So today, take it as an introduction to this passage, and the following weeks, we will dive deeper in to every single one of these verses. I think it's, it's needed, and I know sometimes pastors can just fly through it, but I really want to spend some time elaborating what these verses say. So before we get there, as a brief overview, I want to explain to you what we've been studying. So the first three verses that we studied in chapter 1 explain to us what what was the creator and how the creator, the Logos, was God. And so we have a firm understanding in the first three verses that we read in chapter 1 that the Logos, the word, as it is translated in our English translations, The Word is described as eternal and as creator, and therefore, the automatic uh, response to that is that the Word itself, as verse 3 says, is God. So we have an understanding as the presentation of this Jesus Christ that we're going to be discovering and learning about at the outset of the first chapter, we understand now that He is God. Here is a man that is God. So that's like the shock value at the, initi- at the, at the uh, beginning of this passage of chapter one. Then verse four through five, we learned a little bit about what this Jesus does. He not only creates, the Logos not only creates and is eternal, but the Logos has given us life. And in that life, he has shown his light. So we have true life, Inside the true light that is in the Lagos. So we, we don't find a life anywhere else. There is no other life because there is no other light that shines like Jesus Christ. So that begs us to understand, walk in light and receive life. Verses 6 through 8, we discovered that there was an immediate testimony, an eyewitness of someone that can verify that this man existed, and this person was John the Baptist. And what was important about him is that he prepared the way, as the Old Testament had mentioned, and as the Old Testament had prophesied, that there was going to be a man that will come before Christ, and he was going to prepare the way for him, but he is the eyewitness, the eyewitness testimony to this reality that is Jesus Christ. And most importantly, verse 8 says, he was not the light. He was just a small candle. But he was not the main, per se in our modern context, he was not the main attraction. He was just the preparatory for Jesus Christ, the preparation for Jesus Christ. Verses 9 through 13, which we discussed last week, is we understood that this True light now exists in Jesus Christ as opposed to other lights. So we have this argumentative or apologetic from John reminding the the hearers and the readers of this gospel that there are other lights, mini lights or counterfeit lights that will try to grab the attention of the people. But these other lights aren't it They are not the main light because there's only one true light. And the sad story plays off in the rest of the verses of 9 through 13 because this one true light, what happened, if you guys remember last week, this one true light was rejected by his creation. He came into the world that he created, and the very world he created rejected him. And then it went further. The world that he created rejected him, but not not only that, his people... The Jewish nation rejected Christ. His very own didn't accept him. But then we see the the great or the good news in this because the Jewish people didn't accept him, so he opened the doors for everyone. And then he said, for all those who did believe, that includes you and me, for all those that did believe, that don't come from a blood lineage of a, from the Jewish nation, or in fact, a royal lineage, who were not born of man or, by, or the will of man, but of God. What does he say? That beautiful language, we are now considered, and he gave us the opportunity to be what? Children of God. Now, through his grace and love, We have the opportunity to be children of God. Nothing that we could have done could have got us us there. The adoption was unidirectional. He adopted us and made us his children, and now we have a wonderful father. So we have all of that in mind if you weren't here with us these last couple of months, we, do, we, we dove in a lot deeper than that, but we have all of this in our heart and in our mind and in our understanding so that we know what this preparation is for. So the peak of the prologue here at, at verses 14 through 18 reaches the ultimate level of, of, of greatness and, and it becomes clearer and more important that Jesus Christ be seen through very clear of a lens. He needs to be understood very much because we will understand not only the person now, but we're going to begin to understand his role, his work, and ultimately his mission. All of those questions will be answered because if we have a presentation of such a great man that is God, then what did he come to do and why was he here? Here's where the term logos, as we discovered in the first week, couple of weeks, the logos, that term, will no longer be used. As we will see in when we read verses 14 and on, this word or this term logos will no longer be used because in verse 17, we are introduced to Jesus Christ. And from there on out, it's no longer this distant philosophical concept of, The logos, or the word, now it's personal. Now it's Jesus Christ and the rest of this gospel. So the themes of the Old Testament and the connections that we establish are the foundation of the rest of the gospel and the rest of, of what John wants us to understand. So all of this will partake in what Jesus is doing and has done, and his ultimate mission. You have to remember the fact that we're here today still celebrating and singing these songs that talk about Jesus Christ. We have some kind of notion that that Jesus Christ that we sing about and that we've been reading about is coming back. There is this understanding or a general concept in most of our hearts and in our minds that Jesus Christ is coming back. Now the world thinks that's ludicrous. The world thinks that how can a man that died fly away to heaven and then somehow come back? Is that real? Well, the fact that we're here is a testament to our faith, even though the world calls it craziness. The world doesn't understand it. So let's go over this. Let's have a bird's eye view. So let's go up 2,000 feet And let's have a bird's eye view of this passage because it's an incredible passage. So I want to read to you, if you go with me back to chapter one of the Gospel of John, verses 14 through 18. The Word of God says this And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was the one whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's that name. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So you could sense the weight of this passage just by reading these words. And as we read at a bird's eye view, I'm going to ask you to highlight and circle some some words that are very important. But... Let's go through this at a bird's eye view just so that you could feel the weight and then you could feel the need to come back next Sunday and study it even more. So as we begin to see at the beginning of verse 14, the word became flesh. Now circle that or highlight that or underline that or or make that pop out at you so whenever you read this. Later on in your life, you could remember what we talked about and what this means. This word becoming flesh, like I said, is the last time that the term logos or word will be used. But it's giving us this transitional period. The word that we learned about in verses 1 through 8 as creator and as God is now transitioning in our understanding at least. That, that word now became Flesh. So at the beginning of the verses in chapter one, we have the word as God, which is a shock value in itself. And then now we have an even deeper shock value because that God is now taking up flesh, flesh and blood. That's even a bigger shock value, especially in the context of what this of when John is writing. When everyone thought in, in a Gnostic sense or in a Platonic sense that flesh and material was evil. And that the gods were spiritual. The gods would never want to be material. The gods would never come down and and become flesh. That's ludicrous. But God became flesh. This is the concept of what the theologians call the incarnation. And we're going to spend a lot of time in the incarnation. Christmas is coming around around the corner and and we're going to spend a lot of time trying to Decipher that, the incarnation, this God becoming man, that's what it means, that the God of the universe is becoming a man, and it's not inheriting a body per se, but it's becoming Flesh, and we'll we'll dig into that a little bit more because this is a very important concept to get. You may have heard of the incarnation, you may have seen churches named incarnation, or there might be some in the Hispanic world, there's a lot of people that are named incarnation in Spanish. It's an interesting name for, for a daughter. But this concept of the incarnation must be understood and explained because it's simply God. Becoming man while not losing his divine nature. It's a simple way to say it. It's a little bit more difficult to understand it, but that's why we're here. We're going to describe this and and try to get, even though we'll never understand the full mystery behind it, we'll get a little better grasp of what that means. This is another theological term. So we have a theological term on the in the incarnation, but we also have a big theological term in the hypostatic union or hypostasis, which generally means two essences in one person, or two essence in one substance, or two natures in one person. Now that may be like, wait, what's going on here? Where, where, where did I come to? Just This is the bird's eye view. We're not going to spend too much time describing these words yet, but I want you to be aware of what we're going to be talking about and what this means. This hypostatic union in Christ, we find God and we find Jesus. What does it mean to have a complete or a true man and a complete and a true God in one person? What does that mean? Have you ever tried to explain that to somebody else? You'd probably be like, uh, I don't know, something like God becoming man or like blends or I, maybe you have yourself have not been able to describe it, understand it, but that's why we're here. We're going to learn what this hypostatic union means because that means something for us. At the end of the day, we got to ask ourselves, who's hanging on the cross? So this hypostatic union will be understood. It's it just generally means to stand under One, one essence, two substances in Christ, three substances in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then these understandings of what this entails in the person of Christ will get us to understand the continuity in the storyline of redemption. See, the fact that we have Christ entering the scene, In the New Testament, describes to us or fulfills an Old Testament narrative. There is a storyline, there is a plot line, there is a plan of redemption. Nothing is happening by coincidence, nothing is arbitrary. This isn't just like, well, this didn't work out, so let me try this. Oh, now let me try this plan. Oh, now let me try to figure this out. God isn't just like trying to figure things out on the fly like you and I do most of the time. God prepared this. God planned this. God is executing everything into place. This is God's will, and Christ is here to fulfill God's will. It's the ultimate storyline of redemption. I want you to highlight another word. We have this word flesh that we highlighted and underlined. um, But I also want you to underline the word dwelt. In, In verse 14, and the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. Or write it down. The Greek word here is incredible. It says eskeneosin, or coming from the word skeneo, which means to pitch a tent. Skinao is the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word mishka, which is the tent or the tabernacle. That's what they called it. And now the Greek translators, or John is using this word to describe what Jesus is doing. So this God-man becomes flesh. The word becomes flesh. And then what does it do? It dwells amongst us. It pitches his tent. That's why I read Exodus chapter 25 at the beginning of the service, because I wanted you to to take note in the detail of the tabernacle, the materials being used, the type of materials being used in the detail. And then what I wanted you to get in reading that was God was giving these instructions to Moses, telling him what to do, how to do it, and how to collect it. And then at the end in verse 8 of chapter 25, God tells Moses why he's going to do that. Because he says, I want to dwell amongst your people. In the Old Testament, we have a, a tent, a physical tent dwelling, a place, a location, a building per se. In the New Testament, we have God becoming flesh to dwell amongst us. This is Jesus Christ pitching his tent and establishing himself and his presence amongst his people. These connections uh, between the Old Testament are even stronger and it highlights even more the importance because in this dwelling, I want you to highlight another word. We have this word in verse 14, glory. Glory. If you keep reading, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory. Highlight that, underline that, or write it down. We have seen this glory, which makes this other Old Testament connection from the Shekinah glory that dwelt in the temple, in the tabernacle. At the beginning of the tabernacle Moses and you if you read Exodus and if you take one of our Pentateuch classes you'll understand what's going on in the book of Exodus. What God is doing by liberating his people and then bringing them to a sole dependence on him and then establishing himself amongst them through the tabernacle, through through sacrifices. He's in there. He's with them. He's dealing with his people and then he shows and reveals his glory. There's a there's a story in the Old Testament where, Ab- where Moses goes up to the mountain, and then he comes down full, shining, because he was in the presence of God. So the glory in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament, is now being revealed In the New Testament, through Jesus Christ. What's what's even more impactful here, my friends, and this is the man and this is the Jesus that you worship, is that in the Old Testament, Moses begged God to let him see him. If I could just take one glimpse of your face. God said, no, that's too much for you. You're just a human being. So he just passed by him, and he let him see the backside of him. But in the New Testament, what does it say? We have all seen his glory. They saw. Those people in the first century, beginning of the first century church, they saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And and friends, now you and I get to see that exact same glory in Jesus Christ. How How do we, if you may ask yourself, how do, how do we see that? How do, how do we perceive that is Jesus? Where's Jesus? Well, we'll get there. It's not in the physical, physical person of Jesus because the Bible clearly tells us that he is not here physically. How do we see his glory then? Well, that's going to work out in his mission. We'll see that as we keep diving into this. But we get to see this glory in Jesus Christ, which is the glory of God. Now if you keep reading in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The glory as the one, as the only son. If you could underline those couple of words. The only son, highlight that, circle that, look it up on Google. What does this mean? What is this only son concept? In the Greek, we have this, the, these two words coming together, monogenes, the mono gene, one gene, one person coming together. What does this mean of God? God only had one son. Didn't he just say in verse 12 that we are all children of God now? How does that work? Well, that, that, that deserves some attention. What does this mean? This speaks of, his, of Christ's uniqueness of his only class. There is only one type of class that Christ exists in, and no other class or no other person can be in that class. He is alone. He is unique. He is one and only of God. Now, God has more sons and daughters like you and me, but no one is like Christ. He is monogenes. He is unique. He is in one class all by himself. And remember, this is just the bird's eye view. I'm just explaining this to you at a general level. because so I want to get into these terms a little bit more and spend more time on them so I don't feel like I'm rushing the entire time. So if you're a little bit confused, don't worry about that. We're going we're to try to get to this with proper time. But this is who Christ is. He is not only dwelling amongst us. He is not only revealing his glory, but he is unique. Once again, fulfilling the apologetic nature of John by separating him from everyone else. There's going to be that tendency, my friends, to pull away from Christ because we see other Christs or other wannabes or other counterfeits that will pull our attention away. You always have to remember that Christ is unique and because he is unique, he is also unique in his work. And if salvation only comes through Christ, then nothing else will fulfill that. So you have to be very careful when your attention and your heart is taken away from Christ. What else does verse 14 say? The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want you to underline those two words. Grace and truth, karis and aletheia. In the Greek, these words are are fundamental to the attribute of God. In the Old Testament, we have God being described countless amount of times in Exodus and in the Psalter. Although most of the psalmists would highlight his mercifulness, his mercifulness, his faithfulness. These two attributes, grace and truth, grace and truth are a part of who God is and a part of who God is in his attributes, the fundamental attributes that the Old Testament people saw in God are now resting in Christ Jesus. He is grace and he is truth because he is God. Verse four, verse 15 now. Remember, again, sorry to belabor the point, but this is just a bird's eye view. Verse 15, what does verse 15 say? It has this brief inter- introduct- I mean, uh, in- interruption here again, uh, like, like we had in verses 6 through 8. Verse 15 says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was the one whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, chronologically, John was born six months before Jesus. And John is saying, well, he ranks more than me because he was before me. Because John understands, like you and I understand now, because we studied verses 1 through 3, that the logos, or that Christ was eternal, was before all time. So John the Baptist understands this. And so what's the point of this small verse uh, inside this prologue? The point is that Jesus Christ is superior. Jesus Christ is better. Jesus Christ is supreme and over even what the New Testament people thought of as a great prophet. Jesus Christ is better than John the Baptist. He's greater. So that's basically what that verse means. It shows us that. It shows us the superiority of Christ. And that's going to be a big deal in the rest of the gospel. Verse 16 for from his fullness highlight that word we have all received grace upon grace his fullness what is it talking about here what does this fullness mean what is jesus christ in his fullness well it's it's qualified with these wonderful words that follow from fullness grace upon grace here i want you to get this because Everything that we've been talking about right now up until this moment about Christ, about who Jesus Christ is, about what he has done, all of that glory, all of that grace and truth, all of that uh, mercy and faithfulness, everything that we've identified already in Jesus Christ, that fullness has been given to us. How have we received this fullness? Grace upon grace. So here it is, my friends. Religion will always put a but at the beginning of, of or in the middle of, of our work. So we, we're, we're here, we're going to worship God, but you got to do this. You have to accomplish this. You have to fulfill this. You have to do these laws. You have to visit these places. You have to fulfill this to achieve your ultimate salvation. Well, the fullness of Christ has already been translated, has already been given to his children. We have received this not by our own doings, not by our own works, not by our own merit. Nothing we could have ever had done could have received God's grace and love and favor for us. That's something that we have to really get and understand because People come to church with this one understanding and it's false and it's damning that if I just come to church and show up and, and, and give my money and, and, and sing the songs and clap when I need to clap, sit down when I need to sit down, say hi to whoever I need to say hi to, then everything else would be okay and my life could be run however I want to do it. As long as I fulfill my church duty. As long as I help them pick up some chairs, as long as I help them do some service, as long as I'm I'm a part of their Sunday morning service, then everything else should be fine. Well, friends, that's not what we're here for. We're not here to fulfill our checklist or our spiritual checklist or even our wanting to feel good about ourselves. Because everything that we need for salvation has been given to his people by grace. You're sitting here, the sinner that you and I are, we're all here as broken down sinners who have been rescued by Christ through grace. I stand here Sunday mornings, and I sing the same songs that you sing, and I feel what I'm singing because I didn't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I don't, I don't deserve the liberty of worship. I don't stand, I don't don't deserve this opportunity to stand before God. I'm not good enough, my friends. I'm not good enough to to lift my head up and, and, and be in the presence of God. But it isn't me who stands before God alone. It's Christ. God sees Christ in me. And God sees Christ's work fulfilling my duty to be in the presence of God. And as Paul says, we now have no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Friends, you and I can worship freely because of Christ. Because he has given us his fullness by grace. It's grace, my friends. It's not grace that we could say, oh, well, cool, I, I'm, I'm, I'm it. That's it. Grace, that's all I need to do. I didn't have to do anything. I don't need to do nothing now. Well, that's not the grace. That's not what grace means because grace means love. Love means obedience. Love means submitting to the one who saved you. And it isn't a free-for-all. Paul says we cannot make fun of Christ in, in the modern in a modern translation, we cannot make God a fool by saying we don't need the law anymore, by, by saying we don't need the, his, uh, to, to be right, that we can sin freely. No, because then that will minimize his grace. So friends, all of this is yours because you didn't deserve it, because God is graceful. And now Jesus translates this fullness, this pleroma, to you by Grace. Verse 17. Let's keep going. Verse 17 describes another aspect of Christ's superiority, his supremacy. It says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here it is again, my friends. In verse 15, Christ is superior to, to John the Baptist and to any other prophet that existed or will exist. In verse 17 we have first of all the wonderful aspect that we get the name Jesus Christ for the first time in the gospel and it's not just Jesus and it's not just Christ, it's both. It's the fulfillment it's the Messiah it's the anointed one who would come here to do his job in saving sinners it's Jesus Christ and he is greater than what? Well, first of all, he's greater than Moses because Moses only brought us the law. Jesus Christ is better than Moses, and he is better and above the law because he himself fulfilled the law so that you and I don't have to live by the law. Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than the law. Just reveals the nature of who Jesus Christ is. And now you have to remember, why is he saying this? Well, because John is writing to Jews and Gentiles. Jewish people are like, oh, did you just, did you, what? You just said he's better than our boy Moses? Our patriarch? Yes, he is better than Moses. Verse 18, the purpose is summed up in verse 18. Because up until now, we have a picture of Jesus Christ. Up until now, we, we see Christ. The, the Logos is divine. The Logos is human. The Logos is God incarnate. And now, what is his role? Well, his role is described in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. It's what the Old Testament patriarchs wanted to see. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Christ, the Logos, who is at the side of the Father, Who is himself God is now revealing to us who God is. Not only in himself because we see his glory in him, but now what is he doing? This this word right here, he has made him known, is the word that we get for our modern understanding of preaching, exegesis, explanation. A profound explanation of the text So what is Christ doing? Christ now is explaining to us the Father. Christ is explaining God to us. Because if you and I intend to try to understand God, we're going to fall very short. Paul himself says in Romans chapter 12, all the depths and the glories of the mercies of God. Like who can ever understand them? God does stuff that we will not understand, and that's why we need Jesus. He's explaining the Father to us, and he's making him known. That sums up the role of Christ. Now, I hope that this introduction to this passage has made the gravity of it more important. Now there has to be these connections. Now we have to understand why this is being said. Now John, I mean, John just didn't write the first 18 verses and then closed the book and said, well, that's all the writing I need to do. No, now he explains his life in the next chapters. He's going to give us wonderful stories and wonderful uh, interpretations of what Jesus did Here on earth. But friends, if we are superficial in our understanding of Christ, those parables and those stories, well, we're just going to be like, oh, that was nice, Jesus. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, those are some nice words. Oh, for God to love the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. Those words aren't going to mean anything to us, other than being nice. We have to know this, so that we can get to John three sixteen, and I can't wait till we talk about John three sixteen. Can't wait till we talk about John six. I can't wait till we talk about the Samaritan woman in John chapter four. I can't wait till we explain all the signs in the first twelve chapters. It's going to be an impressive understanding of this personal Christ, but we cannot swim in the shallow end, my friends. Cannot stay there. It's time to go deep. It's time to dive in and really discover what the Bible has because its riches are going to give us understanding. And at the end of the day, my friends, the reason why we do this is so that you become more aware of who Jesus Christ is in you and what he is doing in you. Like I told you earlier, who is hanging on the cross or who was hanging on the cross? If you have a superficial understanding of Jesus Christ, then, who was hanging on the cross? Was it, was it a man? Was it, was it God? How do you explain that? How do you explain his purpose on the cross if you don't understand the deeper meanings of what John is trying to bring? If you don't understand the work of the Messiah, the work of Christ, the work of Jesus, then whoever hangs on the cross will ultimately have a deep or a, or a deeper understanding for your atonement perspective. Did Christ die for sin, or did Christ die as an example, which is a huge debate in our modern culture. So there's been a lot of people that have misunderstood Christ. That's why we have a lot of different religions. That's why there's a lot of different sects out there. That's why we have Mormonism. That's why we have Jehovah's Witnesses, because there is a flawed understanding on who Christ is. Jehovah's Witnesses don't want to accept his humanity. They want to reject his humanity. They say that he only appears to be human. Well, what does it mean that he became flesh? What does that mean? So, my friends, that's why this is important because sometimes, or maybe one Saturday from now, you'll get knocked on the door. And they'll tell you that Jesus wasn't God. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when you walk out of the train station and you bump into people with little banners and signs and little booklets? They're going to change your mind. And then I won't see you here on Sunday. Like, what happened, bro? We've been studying John together. And you left. Well, those are just trivial little anecdotes. But I'm, just, I'm I really want you to get that we as Christians, as children of God, need to understand Christ. Okay? So next week. We're going to dive into the flesh. We're going to go back to verse 14 and discover what this word flesh really means. Amen? Stand up this morning. Shake somebody's hand next to you. We're like, hey, you hung in there. Ask him to explain the hypostatic union if possible. <laughs> All right, friends, let's pray together. And like I said, hopefully... You could come back, spend some time with us, with your family, ride some ponies. And I think they're bringing some horses for the adults, so if you're down for that. um, But bring some coats and bring some sweaters because it is chilly outside. Let's pray. Father, we, we are amazed by your word. Your word is light and it illumines our path. We walk constantly in a dark world. We are constantly surrounded by darkness. But you said you are light. And we are your children. Therefore, we are children of light. Father, we don't only use the light so that we can see, but we need the light to spread. And that is what we're here to do. We leave this place spreading the light of Jesus Christ, which reflects the character of Christ. We love one another. We treat each other with respect. We live a godly life because God lives in us. We live a life that honors you. Father, I pray that this church, these people here today, And go home in awe of what you have done for them through Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in the glorious name that is above all names. Jesus Christ, amen.